Good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, CCF. <clears throat> and Happy New Year. <laughs> Not a lot's changed. Um, we're still meeting in the gym. Decorations are still up for one more week at least. Uh, I think it's still raining at last check. Um, I'd still be wearing shorts if I wasn't preaching. Lots the same. I figured if I get a, a suit on that my average dress for church this year is pretty high. So <clears throat> one thing that hasn't changed is, is the Lord. And we talked about this last week, that uh, God doesn't change. He is still sovereign. He's still our king. He's still the savior. Still the father, the son, the Holy Spirit. Still graceful. Still patient with us in spite of ourselves. Last week we started going through the book of Hosea. And we're going to finish the whole book today. This is just an overview. This is not an in-depth verse-by-verse the way I'd, I'd really like to. But even as we went through the first three chapters last week, we saw how consistent God is and how he was king throughout. And we talked about the different ways that God relates to us. One of those ways is as the husband of his chosen people. And that's the illustration of the first three chapters of Hosea. That God gave us this example of his husbanding of his people through Hosea's very life, he had a very unusual command as a prophet to go and, and marry Gomer, a certain woman who was going to cheat on him and have children by other men, and he would have to go and buy her back. And it was this picture of not just Hosea and Gomer, that marital relationship, but a picture of, of God and Israel because Israel was acting that same way as Gomer, Hosea's wife, was. And the low point of that was in chapter 2, verse 13. We spent some time on that last week. It says that she, and this refers both to Gomer, Hosea's wife, but also to Israel, God's chosen people, she decked herself with her earrings, earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me, she forgot. That's pretty low. She had an intent and forcefully forgot her husband, the same way that Israel forcefully and intentionally forgot about God. But it's also a picture of mercy. And at the end of chapter 3, we see that because God calls Hosea to go and get her back. Go love her again, it says. And he says, I'm going to do the same thing with my people. God, too, restores his people. And so there's, even in that picture of, of just destruction in that marriage, that terrible relationship, God restores it. God has the power to restore that. And he's going to do the same thing with his people. He says, I'm going to allure them. I'm going to bring them back. They're going to be mine. And that shows us God's consistency. God has always wanted to have that right relationship with us. And he will always uphold his end. That's the beautiful thing about that is that God never forgot them. They forgot God. Gomer forgot Hosea. But God never forgot his people. And he never will. And he showed the, the lengths that he's willing to go to for that relationship, to have that, that right relationship with us and with his people. We see that in his patience throughout Scripture. I mean, I have the large print version, so it's about 2,500 pages of patience. <clears throat> we see it in his, his forbearance of wrath. 2 Peter 3.9 is one of my favorite verses in the, in the whole word that says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Of course, knowing that not everybody's going to come to repentance, but longing for it. He wants that. <clears throat> He's willing to go to pretty extreme lengths to get that. He has a persistent love for us. We see it in the unfolding revelation in, in Scripture and in our own lives. We see it in the examples of his love that he lays out for us and the parables that Jesus shares with us and the preservation of his word to us this day, a couple thousand years later. And then we see, of course, the ultimate length that he's willing to go to that is spoken about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this 
mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What a length he's willing to go to for you and for me and for these people. They were dastardly people. They wronged God in so many ways, just as we do. And yet the lengths he's willing to go to are profound. And so forgive me if I get excited today as we go through the rest of Hosea, but it's an exciting message because it talks about God's providence and God's power to overcome even our worst and most terrible sin. Now, we're going to go through 11 chapters today, which seems insane to me. And those of you who study with me, you know that seems insane. But I figure, you know, the best place to start is at the beginning. But the second best place to start when you're looking at something long is at the very end. So turn to the very end of Hosea, chapter 14. It's only a few pages. The very end of Hosea, the very last verse of the very last chapter of Hosea. This is where we're going to start this morning. Chapter 14, verse 9. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Now, this may be an author's postscript that whoever collected the sayings and writings of Hosea added this on as an emphasis to do this, or maybe Hosea himself. Either way, the point is that you got to pay attention. Know these things. Understand these things, he says. The ways of the Lord. Understand those so you can walk in them. Understand the ways that the Lord loves us all the way to the cross. Now, by starting at the end, I've kind of cheated a little bit and I've I've given away the ending, but you should know where the end is. Anytime that we study the word, the end is always the cross. That's always where we're headed. I've gotten two pieces of advice for for preaching. I've got a lot of like tips and feedback and that kind of thing. Um, Always open for more. Um, But I've gotten two solid concrete pieces of advice. For, for teaching the word. Number one is don't preach deeper than you understand. So if you don't get it, don't try to explain it because you're bound to mess something up for somebody. Number two is always land on the cross. We always want to land there, and God always does. And so we're going to see, as we get to the end of this, over 11 chapters today, in Hosea chapter 14, verse 9, we're going to end on the cross with a better understanding of who God is. So back to the start, chapter 4. After these first three chapters where Hosea and Gomer, we see their lived experience, now we could see God exhorting Israel and Hosea exhorting Israel, knowing what it's like to go through that. I have to imagine that changes perspective quite a bit. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Hosea. It says, this is Hosea speaking, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. He gets right to the point. This is the root of the the rift. You remember? She forgot, right? Me, she forgot, God said. There's no knowledge of God in the land. And this, this kind of forgetting that Israel has done to God. This is not the accidental kind, like I forgot where my keys are, but this is the intentional kind. I've forgotten God so that I can replace him with something else. I'm going to go after something else. In the case of Israel, they were going after idols and wooden staves and golden calves and things like that. 
But if God is so familiar to these people, these are God's chosen people, if he's so familiar with them, how was she able, she being Israel, how was she able to forget them in the first place? He lays it out right there in verse 1 of chapter 4, because there's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Now, your translation may be different. The NIV calls it, uh, there's no faithfulness or love or acknowledgement of God in the land. The ESV says there's no faithfulness or steadfast love or knowledge of God in the land. But whatever words your, your translation uses, all those things are interconnected. They all depend on each other. And that's one of the things I love most about God is how logical he is. He's so easy to follow. Because without knowledge, you don't have truth because you won't know what the truth is. And without truth, there's no love because you won't know what you're supposed to love or how to love it properly. And without love, there's no, there's no gaining in knowledge because you're not committed to it. And so it's this cycle, right? And there's no truth or no knowledge <clears throat> or no mercy. It all falls apart. Jeremiah chapter 4 kind of paraphrases this whole thing. Um, Verse 22 there, it says, For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children. It's probably the nicest thing God could say about us, really. And they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. And that's the fundamental problem. We're going to see that throughout the book of Hosea. The fundamental problem is that there is no knowledge of God in Israel. And if they don't know him, they can't understand the truth about him. And they're not going to love him. <clears throat> so they have walked away not just from God, but they've walked away from all truth and all mercy and all wisdom. And we see this lots of places in Scripture too. There's no vacuums. There are no vacuums. Where the Holy Spirit doesn't reside, the enemy will fill it up. And where there's a rebuffing of wisdom, there's going to be an abundance of foolishness. It's a dangerous situation they've got themselves in. There's no knowledge of God. And I want to clarify, I don't mean that they don't know anything about God. Okay, these are God's people. They know the stories. The ones who can read have read the scriptures. I mean, the history is, is well known in Israel, even in this time of, of discontent and, and rebuffing of God. But just as there are two kinds of forgetting, there's the, the accidental forgetting and there's the active forgetting, well, so too are there two kinds of knowing. Right? There's informational knowing, and there's, there's intimate knowing. The, the Greek he would use, gnosis and epignosis, you've probably heard Matt in a study, you know, if you took the how to study your Bible class, you, you heard about that. The two kinds of knowing, informational and, and, and intimate. Knowing about something and, and knowing something really well. Hosea chapter 4 verse 1, when he talks about there not being any knowledge of God in the land, that's the second one, that's the epignosis, that's the knowing well, the intimate knowledge, that's not there. They know lots about God. Let me, to give you an example of what this, what this would be, I, I'm pretty good at finding stuff online. Like, I, I grew up with Google, you know, and, and so I have a, people ask me to find stuff. It's fairly easy for me. If you know how to, how to query stuff, you know, finally I used for my, my MFA degree, um, I could take 10 minutes if you gave me somebody's name, and I can learn a lot about them. I can learn their full name, probably their families, where they live, where they work, what kind of car they drive. You'd be surprised what you can find out, which is, why I think it's silly that anybody worries about privacy. It's all out there. You just have to be able to find it. But I could find out a lot about a person. I could have a lot of information <clears throat> excuse me, about somebody. But I won't know them at all, right? You can tell me the name of your cousin that you know, and I will find out a lot of information about them, but I won't know them at all. And that's, that's kind of the difference here is they have knowledge. They know about God. But they don't really know him. They're not in relationship with him. 
They'd forgotten him intentionally. And that kind of forgetting, it, it persists today, doesn't it? It shows up, that kind of forgetfulness, that intentional forgetfulness, that self-righteous forgetfulness. It shows up when we think that God's okay with whatever we want to do, whether it's, you know, how we approach marriage or gender or lying or whatever. He just, he'll tolerate sin and disobedience. Those are fine. As long as we repent of it later, right? I'm a Christian, so all my actions be justified and it'll be all right. That's, that's that kind of forgetfulness, that putting God out of our minds as an excuse to do something else. And we especially have a tendency to forget when, to forget about God when, when we don't feel like we need him. And that's the situation they found themselves in, in Hosea. And the time that he's, he's teaching and, and prophesying, Israel is, is relatively well off. I mean, in, in a financial sense, in a political sense, they've regained some territory, their trade is going well, they've got a fair amount of money in the, in the coffers uh, of the nation. They're, they're doing fairly well. You know, the, the stock market's really high. But they forgot God. They felt like they didn't need him. Chapter 13, he says to the people, that you, you guys, your needs were met, and then you forgot me. Verse 6 says, they were filled, and their heart was exalted, therefore they forgot me. Because they were filled, because they had it all, because they didn't need me, they didn't think they needed me, they forgot. And so we too, we have a tendency to forget him when we don't think we need him, when it's not up in our face. And, and what happens when we forget God is that, that, that time that we should be spending remembering him gets filled up with folly and with foolishness. Chapter 8, verse 12 of Hosea says, I have written for him the great things of my law. Look at this. I've got it. This is the text God gave us. But they were considered a strange thing. What a shame. We have, God gave us all this information. We shouldn't consider it a strange thing, but that's what was happening. They knew all the information. They had scrolls. They had priests. They had history. They didn't get it. Can happen to us too, you know, reading through this. The language is hard, it's kind of archaic, it's really long. Right? There's all these genealogies. Who wants to do that? I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. And and the cycle continues as we as we forget about God a little bit, we forget about him more and more, and it becomes harder and harder to recognize him because our hearts aren't in it. And you know, chapter 11, verse 7, it says, My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. They still remember God's name. They know they're supposed to pray to God. They're supposed to seek him out, but they're not doing it with their hearts. They don't exalt him. They still know that he's powerful. They still know that he can deliver mercy in times of need. They still know that he's there, but they don't exalt him because we've forgotten God. There's no knowledge, no truth, and no mercy in the land. And yes, I do mean we have forgotten him because we have to be real careful that we don't look at the problems of Israel and Hosea and think, oh, it was 2,700 years ago. You know, that's, that's not us. Or to point our fingers today at other nations or other people groups or school boards or individuals or coworkers and say, well, shame on them, but, you know, that's, that's not us. It's not me. Couldn't happen here. Couldn't happen to me, right? I go to church. I, I do Bible study. I, I read. I pray. I'm a pastor. Couldn't happen to me, right? But that's the insidiousness of pride. Um, Luke chapter 18, I'm going to spend a couple minutes there because this is one of my favorite chapters um, in my favorite gospel, Um, partly because it includes the first verse that I ever memorized when I was a teenager and my friend Chastity introduced me to the Word and to church. 
and to the Lord. Chapter 18 of Luke, starting in verse 9. I love this chapter because Jesus just does these like back-to-back-to-back parables, just rapid fire, short, succinct, clear, and biting parables. So you probably know this one. Verse 9 of Luke chapter 18, it says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes all all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That last one, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the first verse I ever memorized, and then I violated it like 30,000 times since then. (laughs) Because I began to get some knowledge, but I didn't know him. If we were going to to condense this parable even further from just a few verses that it is, we would say that um, one man says, thank you for what I have done, and the other one says, you alone have power. I can handle it versus I need you. It's a very simple, very clear instruction. It's a very clear example of the danger that awaits us. When we have knowledge, that Pharisee knew all kinds of stuff. He didn't know God. And that danger is alive and well for, for each one of us because pride is... Is, is insidious, it, it infiltrates, it, it creeps, it, and it sneaks, and it lingers, and it lurks. The danger is in us believing that we don't really need God as much as we used to, that we've got it under control. And if you have know, 2020 showed us anything, is that we don't got it under control, right? <clears throat> Definitely not. But we can choose in that to choose ignorance. And this is not the kind of ignorance that is blissful. Far from it. Now, I said we're going to land on the cross, and, and it seems like we're a long way from it right now. Um, but think about that for Hosea, too. They were a long way from the cross in terms of their understanding. <clears throat> Hosea, as a book, has a, a long, difficult middle. It's very tough, but we are going to land there. So for a moment, we're going to turn the lens back around from us, praise God, and put it back on Israel as an example to us. We're not off the hook, right? But we just need to learn from their mistakes. They didn't know God. Now, if I was going to ask you, where does knowledge come from? What would you say? God, yeah. Easy answer, right? But there's a how to how does knowledge come from God? It doesn't just like appear one day, right? In our heads. So here's a few pieces of scripture to talk about the process. Proverbs chapter one, verse five. A wise man will hear and increase learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see words like learning and counsel and instruction. There has to be a willingness to learn, to have knowledge. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Cry out, lift up, seek, search, find. There has to be effort, so there has to be willingness 
to learn. There has to be effort put into it too. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding of all those who do his commandments, his praise endures forever. You got to do it. There has to be a willingness to learn. There has to be an effort put into it. And then you have to actually do it. James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, and then peaceable, then gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. First it's one, and then as you grow, it becomes other things. There's a process, patience. You have to have willingness. You have to put in the effort. You have to do it, and you have to go through the process and have patience with it. It's not instantaneous. 2 Peter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. There has to be a willingness to learn, to have knowledge of God. There has to be effort put into having knowledge of God. There has to be action applied to those things. You have to be patient with the process of knowing God. And as you do that, that's going to lead to the growth. So they have to seek knowledge. It's active. And they're not putting in the work as you go through Hosea, you're going to see God telling them constantly over and over again, you're not putting in the work. You got to do it. And they're not doing it. And that's why they don't know God. And so Israel, instead of knowing the Lord, loving him with truth and mercy and knowledge, they're just all kinds of corrupted. Some of the things that God accuses them of or declares that they are, because he doesn't need the burden of proof, he's God, he calls them robbers, he calls them thieves, he calls them liars, he calls them murderers. They make idols, they have false kings, they're jealous. And all the meanwhile, chapter 9, verse 7 tells us that they're, they're real leaders and prophets, the people who are trying to get the truth across, they're dismissed as crazy. <clears throat> and the, the preposterousness of their spiritual situation is probably best summed up in chapter 4, verse 12. So since we're still kind of in chapter, or chapter 4, verse 12 says, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They don't even know where to look anymore. They're, asking, they're looking for directions from a stick. That's where they're at right now. These people are so lost. It, later in chapter 7, there's a verse about how they, they wail on their beds. They cry out, but they don't cry out to me with their heart. God says. They're just making a lot of noise. It's big noise, it's a big show, but there's no heart in it. There's no recognition of their need to submit. I have one kid who recently, when things weren't going well, I won't name names, but she's not a twin, so. <laughs> I have one kid who, when things weren't going well, she would, um, she would just scream. Not, not words, she wouldn't yell, she would just Scream like a shrieking goat, like, ah, like that. It was terrible. <laughs> and so, you know, so she'd do that, and I'd go up to her, and I'd be like, you know, I'd ask this little banshee what was wrong. And she'd say, ah! You know, how can I help you? Ah! Do you need something? Ah! It gets old pretty quick. <laughs> I wanted to help her so much. I wanted to understand what was wrong so that I could help her deal with it and get through it and be better off. But she would just look at the wall and scream. There's no purpose to that. That's what Israel was like at this point. Wailing on their beds, but their hearts weren't in it. God wanted to help them. He loves them. And they just wouldn't 
admit their wrongs and actually turn to him and be helped. They just sat on their beds and went, ah! You have to let yourself be helped. And they didn't. How can they sink this low? The middle of Hosea is a very down point. And you got to think, how did they get here? These people, these are God's chosen people. How did they get here? How did they let themselves get to this point? There's a clue for us in chapter 4, verse 17. <clears throat> God is speaking. He says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. There's a leadership problem. Earlier in verses 6 through 9 of that chapter, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They will eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priest. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. They are set on iniquity, on evil. And their leadership is headed south. Now, a phrase there is really interesting, like people, like priest. We have a phrase like that, right? Like father, like son, that what the father demonstrates, the son will emulate. That scares the snot out of me every day as I see Miles being more and more like me. <clears throat> but this is, this is backward, isn't it? Should be like priests, like people. They're supposed to follow the priests because they're, they're close to God. They know the scripture. They're responsible for teaching, all that kind of stuff, right? But it's, it's backward. Something's wrong here. It says the way of the people in general will be the way of the priests. And it's going to cycle like that. The people are going to be like the priests, and the priests are going to be like the people. Nobody's going to be like God. And I don't know which comes first, you know, the, the, the people's behavior or the priest's behavior. You know, it doesn't matter if the chicken or egg comes first, because in the end, they both end up fried. That's where they're headed. Like people, like priests. There's a serious leadership problem in Israel. And there's a reason that there are such strong words against people who would lead God's flock away. It, I, can, I can tell you, it is terrifying to read the Bible as a pastor <laughs> because there's so much reserved for those who would lead God's people astray. Harsh rebukes and harsher punishments. Because leadership leads, even into death. There's a whole biblical history of, of false teachers and, and, and prophets and, and evil kings disrupting and, and destroying the nation and, and God's desire not even to give people a king. He says, I just want to give you judges. And they're like, no, everybody else has a king. We want one too. God says, it's going to be terrible for you if you have a king. We want one anyway. Here's a king. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. There's a whole string of those. People get led astray by leadership. It's one of the reasons we're supposed to pray for our leaders. Because they need help. You know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden is not going to lead us into righteousness on their own. They're evil men. <clears throat> you know, not because they're with a particular party, because they're men. <clears throat> and so we're supposed to pray not that they're going to do what's politically expedient, but that their heart will be changed toward God. We're never going to find a perfect politician or a perfect governor or a perfect church or a perfect pastor. We need to be in prayer for leaders. Constantly. I hope you guys are. We need your prayer. Seriously. 
you know, because our hope doesn't rest in men. It rests in God. You know, as, as the assistant pastor, I'm an under-shepherd of Pastor Matt, but we are both under-shepherds of Christ. And the difference between Matt and I compared to us and Christ is, like, way different. <clears throat> we have a great and dependable high priest. But it's not any created man. It, it's Jesus Christ. Good leadership is available The perfect leader is right there, and God has been telling his people forever that he's ready to lead them, and they won't listen. The nation was corrupted because they hadn't put themselves under the authority of God that they were supposed to. That kind of ignorance is the fruit of arrogance. You see that throughout Hosea, this thread of of the people's supposed self-sufficiency. Chapter 10, verse 13 says, You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way, in the multitude of your mighty men. They thought they had it under control. And when you don't have knowledge, when you don't bow down before God and are willing to accept his knowledge, you're not going to have truth and there won't be mercy. Your lies are going to produce sour fruit and the wickedness you plant is going to grow into evil. God is logical. One thing follows after another. Chapter 13, verse 6, we actually touched on this earlier. When they had pasture, they were filled, the people were. They were filled and their heart was exalted, and therefore they forgot me. What an indictment. And it mirrors the sentiment of Gomer in the early chapters. She she sought after things that she thought that her lovers were providing for her, grain and, and, and jewelry and wealth and those kinds of things. She thought that she was the cause of her own blessings because it's something she did and she earned it. It takes a lot of work to be that arrogant. And it has consequences. You know, a huge portion of the, the latter chapters of Hosea are, are about what Israel has done and what's going to happen to them because of it. But to look at it just really succinctly, In chapter 9, you can see it in four verses. In chapter 9, starting in verse 10, this is God speaking. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre, planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. It sounds terrible. It is terrible. Physically painful. But the real punishment is hinted at there in verse 12. God departing from them. You see, the the punishment for forgetting God, the worst kind of punishment for that, is that God will forget them. Hosea pronounces that on Israel in in verse 17. My God will cast them away because they did not obey him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. It's going to get rough for them. This parallels chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. And in case you're wondering, open country is not a safe place for a lamb. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. How terrible to be left alone by God in open country to fend off the wolves. How frightening it would be to be left without the shepherd's staff. Especially when he longs to protect us. He's been telling us all along, I want to be with you. Just turn to me. 
And I would love to linger on those couple of verses for like a month, but I can't this time. The people have chosen a lack of knowledge. They've chosen to forget God. And that lack of knowledge leads them into sin. Chapter 8, verse 11, Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. Check. God's logical. Ephraim has made many altars for sin, and then he uses them for sinning. Yeah, of course. You can't light a fire in your living room and expect it not to burn down your house. When you make altars for sin, you use them for sinning. Don't make opportunities for that. They're in a spiral. They're in a tough place. Hosea is a tough book. Are you glad now that we're not spending 12 weeks on this? Everybody's pretty glum right now. But if this feels monotonous and depressing, then, then imagine what it was like for Hosea to have to speak this out to a nation who didn't want to listen to it. Think about what it was like to literally live this out as he did in the first three chapters. How miserable that would have been. Think about the misery for God to see his chosen people forgetting him on purpose. Ugh. Can't this people ever be redeemed? You know, my son struggles with his relationship with God a lot. He knows a lot about God. He's heard a lot of information and he's read scripture and he's listened to me teach and others teach and we prayed and, and so on and so forth. But he, sometimes he breaks down and he says, I just don't think God can save me. I feel like I'm the worst person in the whole world. <clears throat> Got to collect myself for a second. <laughs> you ever felt that way? Things are just so bad. Well, that's its own kind of pride, though. You know, I'm so bad, God can't save me. That's how bad I am. <laughs> it's so twisted. So to ask, can these people ever be redeemed, is a, is a silly question. Of course they can. That's what I tell Miles. Of course you can. But you can't do it. Of course these people can be redeemed, but not by themselves. And to Hosea, that would have been a really silly question because he's lived it out. He's seen God's redemption. At the end of chapter 3 of, of the first section of the book, he's redeemed. His relationship with his wife is restored. Praise God. He knows that mercy. <clears throat> What better minister is there to somebody than that who knows how deep that mercy is? Ah, of course God's love is greater. And and as you go through Hosea, and I hope you've read the whole thing in the last week or so. If you haven't, please do it. It's so good, and it's not very long. As you go through, you're going to see that parallel to this narrative of all the, the glum and doom stuff, there is a parallel narrative of God's grace and his mercy all through Hosea. And it's beautiful. And it begins to come to fruition in chapter 11. These are just sweet words. God is speaking here. He says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. But I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their their neck. I stooped and fed them. What a gentle picture of God. You see, his his people, Israel, they've they've been in the process of growing up, learning how to walk. You know, our our youngest, Edith, who's passed out sideways in the back there, (laughs) she's at that age where she's she's starting to try to figure out how to move her feet, move around, walk along the couch, you know, that kind of thing. 
trying to stand up, and she's fallen a lot, right? And in the next couple of weeks, she's going to bruise her head like 60 times. It's going to be awful. She's going to come to church, and you're going to be like, what happened to that kid? You know? Because she's going to fall often as she's learning to stand up and to walk. There's going to be bruises. They're going to fall a lot. But we're still in this process. God says, my people, I'm teaching them to walk. I taught them to walk. I held their hands. And they're still maturing. We, we are still maturing as God's people. We have to be really careful not to be angsty teenagers as we're maturing. He continues on in verse 8 of, of chapter 11. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. I love you, God says. How can I let you go? You're my special people. God chose us, adopted us as sons and daughters, despite our sin. And he doesn't succumb to anger. His anger, when he has it, is righteous. He doesn't act out of vindictiveness, and he doesn't act on a whim or without thinking, but he is measured and thoughtful, considered and logical. can't believe he has that much patience for us. Now, evil is not going to go unpunished. Hosea is clear about that. But even though there's going to be a lot of tumult, and these are going to be very rough, they're going to be taken into captivity not long after Hosea is done ministering or prophesying, but even as, as God punishes Israel for their sinfulness, there is so much hope and love scattered and then building in Hosea. And you begin to see this little picture of like, oh, there's a little bit of hope in the beginning, and it just grows and grows and grows and grows. Chapter 13, verse 14, this is where the, you know, the depths of despair bring up the heights of grace. And we can see God's grace in contrast. Verse 14 of chapter 13 says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Death, where is your sting? We sang that half an hour ago. It should still be ringing in our hearts. Death, where is your sting? Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. It's, there's shades of Isaiah 25 here that he's going to swallow up death forever and wipe away every tear from every eye. Our sinfulness is not too much for him to overcome. I know that seems like a remedial message that you've heard a thousand times, but listen to it again. Our sinfulness is not too much for God to overcome. It's so important, and it's such a central part of Hosea's slow build to Christ in the end. There are images of the Messiah all over here. Chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, chapter 2, verse 14 through 23, chapter 6, verse 2, 7, verse 13, chapter 8, verse 10, all of chapter 11, chapter 13, 4 through 6, and verse 14. I'll give you those later. <laughs> the payoff is in chapter 14, in the last chapter of this book. Let's turn there real quick. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's only nine verses long. It'll just take a minute. Charles Spurgeon said of this chapter of, of Hosea, he said, this is a wonderful chapter to be at the end of such a book. I had never expected from such a prickly shrub to gather so fair a flower, so sweet a fruit. But so it is. Where sin abounded, grace doth much more abound. No chapter in the Bible can be more rich in mercy than this last of Hosea. And yet no chapter in the Bible might, in the natural order of things, have been more terrible in judgment. Where we looked for the blackness of darkness, behold, a noontide of light. That's what chapter 14 is. So just listen to this, this chapter. 
It begins with Hosea speaking. He says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you. Go repent. And return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. For in you the fatherless finds mercy. And now God speaks in verse 4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the, vine, or excuse me, the wine of Lebanon. Verse 8, Ephraim shall say, What have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. God is faithful and true and generous all throughout the book of Hosea. And it's hard to see in some places, but he pours out so much on us. And what does he ask in return? I like to tell people that all God asks of us is everything. It's a small price to pay. Chapter 6, verse 6. This is a verse of Hosea you're probably familiar with. It says, I desire mercy. This is God speaking. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge or the knowing, the intimate knowing of God more than burnt offerings. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know about him, the information. Yes, it's great to study this. This is important. But even if you read this whole thing, you might still not know God because your heart won't be in it if you're not careful. He wants us to know him intimately. And the more that we know something, the, the more frequently and deeply we can consider it. That's why, that's why sin abounds in ignorance is because you know, in the dark, in the shadows, we don't have to think about it too much. It's, it's hidden and shielded. But Jesus is the light, right? John 8, Jesus is the light. Ephesians chapter 5 Paul writes in verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, right? Figure it out. Go learn. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Uh, yeah, expose them in others when it's time to do that, but also expose them in yourself, right? Let them be exposed by the work of the Holy Spirit in your own life. Because when our sins are exposed, then we have a choice. <clears throat> this is why sharing the gospel is so important. That's why I'm going to include the gospel every time I preach. It's because it's so important. Okay? Because once we're faced with the light, then we have a choice to make. Once we can see what we're dealing with, we have a choice to make. And we have a choice to look at our sin and iniquity, like the people in Israel did in Hosea's time, and declare that they are worth more to us than God's love. That's a choice we can make. And many make that choice. Or we can see just how bright that light is. And we can see how it destroys darkness. And we can give up our sinfulness to him. We can seek him out with a willing heart to go after an intimate knowledge of God and not just 
the, the, the spectacle of it or the, the, the basic form of it. Not just go to church, but go to God. And the more we know him, the more we're going to seek him. And instead of the feedback cycle that the, that the Israelites were in, where like priests like people, like people like priests, and it was just back and forth and, and going nowhere but downhill, we can have a different feedback cycle. We learn about God. And he teaches us about him. And as we become more like God's character, bit by a little tiny bit, we begin to share his, his hatred of, of sinfulness and his love of righteousness. And the things that are in the dark, they will begin to fall away. He saw that that could happen for even these broken people in Israel. Hosea saw it too because he experienced it himself. He saw it was possible to come back to fix a relationship that seemed beyond repairing. And that's the gospel here in Hosea, that these people were broken. They were so broken. They were beyond anything. They weren't even worth saving. And they certainly couldn't save themselves with their sticks and golden idols. But God promised a way. He said, I will heal them. My people are bent on backsliding, but I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. And he has loved us freely. Amen? So much so, and and to such length that that though we were adulterous in our hearts, he sent his son to die for us. Blows my mind that he gives us hope where there was none. I had a long conversation with my kids last night about impossible things. They wanted to know how a camel was supposed to fit through a needle. (laughs) That was a good conversation to have. There's no hope. We can't fit through there, guys. He gives us hope where there is none. He does that, God does that by always landing on the cross. You see it there? Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? That stuff is gone from my heart because I have the Lord instead. I have heard and observed him. I'm like a green cypress tree, and your fruit is found in me. That's what God says his people are going to say when they experience that redemptive power that he has for us. That's amazing. And as we, as we think about that grace that he has toward us, and we consider how well we know him, and how much more we need to know him, it, it's good to remember the sacrifice that made it possible. So if you're, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, then, you know, if you've said, as, as Hosea urges Israel to do in chapter 14, verse 2, um, to take away my iniquity, receive me graciously. If you've asked that of the Lord, then, then take out the, the juice and open the cracker. And if you haven't done that, this is not for you. Just watch. Listen to why we do this. Think about these things for a minute, right? They represent the the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus wasn't that pale, but we'll have to roll with it. Um, think about what a selfless sacrifice this was. But also think about how tremendously powerful is our God to be able to accomplish something like that. Not just that he did it, but that he even could. It's amazing. Because a nation like Israel and a person like me is so far gone that it would be understandable if we thought we had no hope. But God makes a way. 
So consider your heart this morning, church, as you're thinking about this, and let the light do its job of illuminating the darkness so that we can be free. So examine yourself and, and where you were found wanting, because we all are, and repent before God. You don't, you don't have to shout it out right now. <laughs> but recognize that you need him. That you need this cup and this bread. But you can't, you can't come to this cup and this bread with a dirty, darkened heart. You can't do it. How immensely unfair would it be to God to say, yes, I'm going to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by hiding away your sinfulness in your heart. We have a mediator in Jesus, promised redemption that these people 2,700 years ago heard about through Hosea because God wanted them to know, even though they were so far gone. We have a great high priest who both knows what it's like to be like us, and he also knows us intimately, fully. He knows us the way that we should want to know God. So maybe you made a New Year's resolution. Maybe you decided to, to build or fortify a relationship with a coworker or a family member or um, your spouse or some other relative. I would encourage you to, to develop your relationship with God, especially if you're new at it. And if you're old at it, keep going. Romans 11 verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. There's so much here. You will never plumb the depths of it. There is always more richness and depth to your relationship with Christ. That's so exciting. That's why I'm so desperate to see my kids know the Lord so that they can have a full lifetime of being able to plumb these depths. But no matter at what point you come to him, he will love you fully. So, we're going to Approach this with hearts of willingness and effort and action and patience with the process. Take a few moments to pray and relieve your heart of its burden before God. And then take the bread and the cup in your own time. And, and John's going to come up and lead us in another song as we, as we leave. And as we walk away, remember the message from Hosea. Everybody stinks. <laughs> but God is good. So place your hope in him and remember every day to land on the cross. Father, thank you for this time together in fellowship and to do even just a tiny bit of understanding of your word this morning. And I'm so thankful that we could spend months and years in Hosea and never fully get everything you have for us there. And, but rather than a frustration, Lord, that is a joy. We thank you that you have put us in a place where we are safe to be able to do so. Lord, I pray that we would seek you out fully, that we would have hearts that are willing to get to know you well, that we would put in the effort to get to know you well, that we would take the action to get to know you well, that we would have patience with the process of knowing you well, and that you would grow us, Father, to be a church that will glorify you well and often, and that will speak out your name into the world, that others may know the depths of your grace that you showed to Hosea so that he could show it to us. Thank you so much, Lord. We love you. Amen.